Section 16 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8, Campaign of 1705, Part 1. Even after the Battle of Blenheim, the Elector of Bavaria refused to desert the French cause and left his country with the remains of the French army. The Electress remained behind and was forced to make terms with the Allies. Marlborough tried to get moderate terms for her, but she had to surrender all the fortresses and the country was put under Austrian administration. Marlborough and Eugène were joined by the Margrave of Baden, indignant that such glory had been gained whilst he was away. The Allies then marched in detachments to the Rhine whither the French had retreated. After meeting together at Philipsburg, they made arrangements for besieging Landau. The French army, now commanded by Villeroy, was too dispirited to offer them any resistance, and fell back even from the most advantageous positions as they approached, so that they were able completely to invest Landau. Joseph, the young king of the Romans, who was full of the warmest admiration for Marlborough and eager to serve with so famous a general, arrived at the camp before Landau and took the nominal command. The garrison of Landau was full of courage and determined to resist. It was the third siege which the unfortunate city had to sustain within three years. Marlborough, having seen everything well arranged, determined not to be idle during the time of the siege, and leaving the Margrave in command, marched to reduce some of the strong places on the Moselle. In England many objections were made to this continuation of the campaign, as Marlborough was much wanted at home. But Marlborough wished to prepare for the campaign of the following year, when he hoped to carry the war into France. He was successful in taking both Treves and Trauerbach by the middle of November. Whilst suffering in health from the fatigues of the Battle of Blenheim, and harassed with the difficulties of troublesome marches and sieges in the Palatinate, he was still further perplexed by demands from all sides for his advice and direction in matters of English politics and in the affairs of the Grand Alliance. There were some amongst the Tories who were by no means pleased with the victory of Blenheim. They disliked the war, disapproved of the large scale on which it was conducted, and were disgusted at a victory which tended to make it more popular they declared that the battle had been a needless waste of men, and would do little really to abase Louis the Fourteenth, who could easily raise new armies. The Duchess in her letters kept back none of the vexatious things which were said against the war or against the Duke. She had no notion of keeping her husband's mind at ease and saving him from anxieties. Her hope always was to disgust him with the Tories and bring him over entirely to her friends, the Whigs. Godolphin, too, wrote to him for advice in all matters, and Marlborough's disgust with party factions increased. I do assure you, he wrote to the Duchess, as for myself, my pretending to be of no party is not designed to get favour or to deceive anybody, for I am very little concerned what any party thinks of me. I know them both so well that if my quiet depended upon either of them, I should be most miserable. And again, while I live, 
I will meddle with no business but what belongs to the army, and from henceforward shall never more use the expression of being of no party, but shall certainly not care what any party thinks of me. He was much troubled by the state of affairs in Spain, where the Duke of Schomberg, far from showing himself equal to his famous father, had effected nothing, and had spent his time in quarrelling with the Dutch and Portuguese commanders, so that the Duke of Berwick had been able to carry on a successful war in Portugal. The only success in that quarter had been the surprise, on the 4th of August, by the English fleet, under the Prince of Hesse-Darmstadt and Sir George Rook, of the Rock of Gibraltar, which since then has always remained in the English possession. Its importance was hardly realized at that time, and it was little thought that this small spot would be the one permanent acquisition gained by England from a war distinguished by such victories as that of Blenheim. Gibraltar gives England the command of the Mediterranean Sea. The Spaniards repeatedly tried to get it back, but the English people clung to it, first because they considered it due to the national honor to keep this prize, the sole thing that remained to recall a long and victorious war, afterwards because its position made it important for the security of the road to India. From Italy, too, the news was bad. The small army of Victor Amadeus was completely hemmed in by the French under Vendôme, one of Louis XIV's most able generals, and there were fears lest he should not be able to defend his capital. He sent urgent messages to Marlborough for help, which were echoed by the Emperor Leopold, who was most anxious to drive the French from Italy. Marlborough felt that help must be sent to Victor Amadeus, and determined to try and persuade the King of Prussia to allow 8,000 of his soldiers to go to Italy in the pay of the English. For this purpose, having settled his troops in winter quarters on the Moselle, he undertook a fatiguing journey to Berlin at the very worst time of the year. He knew that only by flattering the King of Prussia's vanity could he hope to get anything out of him, and he could do this best by word of mouth. During his journey he heard at last of the fall of Landau, which he had expected most impatiently. He reached Berlin on the 22nd of November, 1704, after a most troublesome journey, during which, owing to the badness of the roads, he was obliged to travel for fourteen or fifteen hours a day. At Berlin his persuasive words were entirely successful. I am very well contented, he writes, at the pains I have taken in coming here. It is not to be expressed the civilities and honors they have done me here. It was not long before the eight thousand men were on their way to the relief of the Duke of Savoy. Marlborough travelled home by way of The Hague, and at last reached England on the 14th December, bringing with him Marshal Tallard and his most distinguished prisoners, and the chief standards which he had taken from the French. He was greeted with the greatest rapture by all classes. On the next day he took a seat in the House of Lords, and received a warm address of congratulation. On the 3rd of January there was a solemn procession of the trophies of war from the Tower to Westminster Hall. First came companies of the horse and foot guards, together with many distinguished persons, and then a hundred and twenty-eight pikemen, 
each carrying a captured standard. The procession passed through the streets amidst the exulting shouts of the people who were ready to laud Marlborough to the skies. On the 6th, the Lord Mayor and Town Council gave a magnificent banquet to Marlborough in the Goldsmiths' Hall. He went there in one of the royal carriages, accompanied by Godolphin, the Duke of Somerset, and the Prince of Hesse-Darmstadt, and followed by a long cavalcade of carriages. At Temple Bar he was received in state by the city marshals, crowds thronged every street, filled the windows, and covered the housetops as he passed, that they might catch a glimpse of his face. The commons of their own accord presented an address to the Queen, begging her to suggest some fit means for perpetuating the memory of the great services of the Duke of Marlborough. Anne joyfully agreed, and proposed to convey to the Duke and his heirs the royal manor of Woodstock. A bill for the purpose passed without opposition, and Anne, not satisfied with this reward, joined to the grant an order to the Board of Works to build at the royal expense a splendid palace in the park at Woodstock, which was to be called Blenheim Palace, and to be a perpetual memory of the victory. The architect chosen for this great building was Sir John Vanbrugh, who was looked upon as one of the first architects of the day. The Queen approved his model, which she kept in the palace at Kensington, and the works were begun at once. In the campaign of 1705, Marlborough hoped to reap the effect of his successes in 1704. He intended to invade France from the Moselle, where in Treves and Trauerbach he had capital magazines for ammunitions and stores. It was the most vulnerable side of France, and he hoped to have a successful campaign in Lorraine, where he believed that the people would welcome him with open arms, for they inclined much more to the rule of the empire than to that of France. Marlborough went to The Hague in April, and after discussions which lasted three weeks, got the consent of the states to his projected campaign. He reached Koblenz by the 17th of May, and was disgusted by the backward conditions of the preparations. The Margrave of Baden was slow as usual, and complained that a wound which he had got at the Schellenberg made it impossible for him to move from his palace at Rostadt. Marlborough made a journey thither himself to try and put his troublesome colleague into a good temper. He flattered him in every possible way, praised his formal buildings and trim gardens at Rostadt, and the Margrave promised to join him, but said that he could only bring a much smaller number of troops than had at first been expected. Neither did the court at Vienna fulfill its promises. The emperor was growing old. All his ministers were old too, and unfit to pursue a vigorous policy. The German states were equally slow, and Marlborough could get neither the troops nor the artillery which had been promised him. The Margrave, instead of joining the army, turned aside to drink the waters at Schlangenbad, and Marlborough met with nothing but vexations and disappointments. The death of the Emperor Leopold and the accession of his son Joseph led him to hope for better things, but nothing could make the Viennese administration more vigorous. Louis XIV, on the other hand, instead of being cast down by the severe reverses of the last campaign, had busied himself with new zeal in preparations to meet his enemies. His hands were now free at home. 
Villars had brought to an end the war with the Huguenots in the Cévennes by granting them very moderate terms. Their leader, Jean Cavalier, took service with the English in Spain, where he commanded a regiment of his fellow exiles. Villars, having finished his work in the Cévennes, was sent with a large army against the Allies on the Moselle, but he had strict orders not to venture a battle, as a defeat there would leave France exposed to an invasion. Marlborough tried in vain to make him fight, but Villars entrenched himself in a strong position and persisted in remaining on the defensive. Marlborough's impatience at the dilatory conduct of the Allies, which took away all hopes of a successful campaign, increased daily. Writing to Godolphin, he says, I have for these last ten days been so troubled by the many disappointments I have had that I think if it were possible to vex me so far a fortnight longer, it would make an end of me. In short, I am weary of my life. End of section 16